Hello and welcome to Found. I'm your host, Daryl Etherington, Managing Editor at TechCrunch, and I'm here with my co-host, TC Plus reporter, Becca Skutak. All right, representing TC Plus. We got the whole, we got the paywall behind the paywall, in front of the paywall. It's all represented here on Found, Mm -hmm. the podcast (laughs) where we bring you the stories behind the startups from the founders who build them. Just a little bit of housekeeping. Please go take our listener survey. It's at bit.ly slash survey, and you'll be entered for a chance to win a free year of TC Plus. Becca, speaking of TC Plus. That may be the best prize for taking a survey I've ever heard in my life. I think there's no hyperbole in that. That's actually the best prize that any of us have ever heard of in our entire lives. So go win it. That's bit.ly slash survey, all one word. But today... We've got a great conversation for you. We're talking to Alice Albrecht from Recollect, a software tool that augments creativity by helping people focus, recall, and connect their ideas. So without further ado, let's talk to Alice. Hey, Alice, how's it going? I'm doing well. How are you? Great. Great. Yeah, just back from LA. So maybe a little jet lagged, but bear with me. (laughs) Uh, Actually, no, I feel great. And of course, we have Becca, who is our fantastic new co-host, doing a killer job so far. Right, Becca? I mean, I hope so. (laughs) Absolutely, you are. Um, (laughs) Alice, can you tell us a bit about who you are and what Recollect does? Yeah. Recollect. So, Recollect. It's probably Recollect, isn't it? It's really or either. Is it Recollect? It's okay. funny. We'll get to that. Maybe I'll just, yeah, I'll say that at the end. Uh, you can do either. So, yeah, I'm Alice. I'm the founder and CEO of Recollect. Recollect is this AI powered thought partner. So, we're really trying to take all of the digital information that you consume and are probably overwhelmed with, and we connect that the way that your mind would using machine learning models. And then we bring that back to you when you need it in this connected way. So, If you're uh, thinking about a topic or going to write something, then we can bring back what you know, notes you've taken that are connected in that moment. Cool. Yes. And I've seen a little demo of it. We uh, connected previously and it looks awesome. And I intend to get using it for myself too, but it's been a busy couple of weeks, so I haven't had a chance to try it out yet. But it looks like something that I, as a writer and as someone who went to school for creative writing too, like would really have loved like, cause it's basically you have these writer's notebooks and they're all sort of like locked information, like just siloed disparate information all over the place. And there's not, I mean, there's a manual way to synthesize it and there's your brain doing its natural synthesis, but this seems like it could really augment that. Yeah. And that's really our goal is really, we're trying to augment creativity and memory. So to do creative thinking, you usually need to be able to get those memories back to start putting them together. And just before we get too far away, since I brought it up, is it it's cool to pronounce it both ways? Do you hear a lot of both ways or what do you hear mostly? I think I mostly hear recollect. Because that's a real word. <laughs> that's a real word. Um, yeah. I don't, naming a company is one of the hardest parts of being a founder, I feel like. Once I got that nailed down, I was like, everything's going to be great. I can do this. So it took a long time to find the name. So you can say recollect where there's this colon in the middle on the name. And so it could be regarding this collection. Right. Hmm. So almost no one gets that. Even my team members recently were like, oh, that's why we have the colon. So it was too (laughs) subtle. That's good. Well, at least it's there for a reason. I feel like a lot of times the colon's just there for stylistic purposes. So you're one up on that. Yeah, it's a paperwork nightmare, so I kind of, maybe should take it out. 
Becca, I'm curious your thoughts. Do you think, because me and Alice have already talked about this, and I, I shared that I would definitely use this. Is this something you think you would be down to clown around with, so to speak, as a writer? Absolutely. I mean, my thoughts, like you mentioned, the writer's notebooks, like my stuff is everywhere. I have notes about a story from three weeks ago next to a grocery list, next to an idea I have about something totally unrelated. So anything that's going to kind of like streamline that, I feel wouldn't be very beneficial to me personally, but also I can see how this kind of spans across a lot of different potential use cases. What's interesting to me, though, is I always find these kind of companies and ideas interesting with the kind of merging of something creative and then something like really deep tech, like machine learning and sort of those kind of algorithms there. And I'm curious, how did you come to that idea, taking that sort of deep tech approach to such a creative problem? Yeah. So before founding Recollect, I was an academic for a while. So I did my PhD and a postdoc in cognitive neuroscience. So I've always kind of been fascinated by this idea of how do humans work? How do we deal with all of this information that's in the world? How do we process it? And then I spent about a decade in tech doing all of the data machine learning roles that there were as that field kind of grew up. And what I noticed was, is we're increasing automation. So part of my job at the end of that sort of 10 years was, hey, company, we want to use machine learning the primary way that a lot of people use it is to automate internal work, actually. It's less about customer-facing functionality, some of the, you know, depending on the industry. And what really struck me in that process was I would sit down with people and try to understand their workflows and try to understand, okay, how could we use machine learning to automate some of your human workflows? And to do that, you have to think about you know, what the person's doing, what their goals are, what materials they have. And I realized that the thing that I believe we're all going to be left with as we continue down this road of automation is our creative thinking. That's amazing to me. And so Recollect really is focused on, you know, how do we help people do that creative set work in part because it's very practical. I think everyone is going to keep doing that and building something that helps with that is great. But I also think that even with all of the, you know, generative algorithms that have come out recently and everyone's very excited about creativity and AI, I still think that humans are the thing or the, you know, the ones that are being doing the creative work. Mm -hmm. So I see the role of this very deeply technical piece of it, all the machine learning work, as a way to do the things that humans are not very good at and kind of let them do that creative thinking process and help them side by side with that. So the augmentation rather than the replacement there. Right. And do you, uh, this is maybe more a philosophical question, but do you think that it, at some point, does it cross over to the point where the algorithms, where the AI is doing the creative work as well? Or do you think that's like, actually, we will never arrive at that particular juncture? It's a great question. I was actually just writing a piece on, you know, how does your brain give rise to this creative process? Mm -hmm. And we can break it down pretty mechanistically and say, okay, we've got divergent thinking. So like lots of ideas that we try to, you know, come up with as many as possible, and then we converge on a solution. And that's a big part of the creative process. And I think we could have machines that do a bit of that. And we've seen that even before the current iteration, you know, with GANs, we've seen algorithms being able to just kind of throw things together. And as humans, we're interpreting that through our own lens. And we can say, that seems really creative. Or maybe it's weird. And it's like, it, it fails in a way that is like very obvious and makes us uncomfortable because it's a human wouldn't fail that way. Mm. So I think we're actually going to get to kind of a middle state where, yes, the machines are doing something that the output of it looks like creative work, but really it's because we've 
designed the algorithms to kind of mimic this process of take a bunch of things that are loosely connected, start throwing them together. Does it look like it's cool? Yes, no. The machines making that judgment, I think, is going to be either farther off or kind of impossible. I, th- I still think we're going to need the mm. humans to like deem something creative. Judge the results, right? Yeah. 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 And that's, you know, there's also the ongoing debate of like whether this set becomes circumspect if it's, if it's feeding itself back into the loop and then right. like what you're actually getting is just an infinite remix variant within a bound set, as opposed to like being able to go beyond that. But yeah. that, when I think about that, I'm like, but also would it make a material difference to an observer? Like would anybody even notice if we were just all now fixed within this bound set or are we now even fixed with this? I mean, it's, are getting a little too ephemeral, I think. <laughs> no, I love this question. Um, I remember being a child, actually, and having a sudden realization. I think it was like the Michael Jackson Bad album, of all things. <laughs> but I was a little kid, and I was like, oh, there are a finite number of notes. Like, music can't be recombined forever, right? Like, there's a fixed right. amount that this could be new. And so when we think about creativity, is like, oh, we're like, you know, mashing these things together and machines are going to have this like kind of a weird set now because they've created some of it, we created some of it, but like, do they just run out of stuff? Like, I think we do too. Mm, yeah. But we don't run into that often, right? Like, you know, I don't know why it was that album, but like music keeps happening. It's still interesting. You get these cases where like people have strong preferences and they kind of reuse the same kind of like that like vanilla ice and clean lawsuit where it was like one note off and like right right so so i think that problem as it were exists for humans i think it'll probably be replicated for machines one thing is interesting though is a training data so a lot of these algorithms are based on training on basically all the stuff that's online if you think about a machine that read everything in 2019 and then that was it right and then we want to evolve those over time but now the things that are going into it are this mix of human and machine and so What's real gets very weird when it's an unsupervised mm. thing, too. Where it's like, right. okay, I don't know what this is. Because like, we've sort of crossed that divide already, though. Like, yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it's. I, I think we could just spend the whole time here, but we might, we might lose ourselves in the process. Um, <laughs> I, <laughs> I, but obviously, you have a deep, deep background in this, and I want to talk a bit more about that. I mean, you mentioned your education, but what about your professional career? Like, how did you kind of come to this over the course of your working life? Yeah, so when I left my postdoc, it was the beginning of this data science craze. People were like, oh, what is data science? This is like 2013, 2014. So right away, what I realized was uh, like sort of crossing over that now we have all of this information and data that's recorded about humans. It could be the way you use an application. It could be your you know, Fitbit, whatever it is. All of this data is now accessible and it wasn't before, which was very mm. interesting to me. And I didn't have to go, you know, as a scientist, I had to collect that. And it was very arduous. I had to sit in the lab and like sit with somebody for hours. In tech, really, I didn't have to do that work. So at the beginning, I was a data scientist, but I was in a very strange role in that I was part of, like, I was helping the design team because I had a vision science background and I would help the user research team. So I got to play these really wide roles almost immediately, I guess, because of this educational foundation. And Mm -hmm. I realized pretty quickly that a lot of the monetization models weren't things that I was excited about. It was a lot of advertising 
like how do we make this thing work so that you spend more time and you get more advertising dollars. So I moved away from that a bit career-wise. I went into fintech for a little while at Simple, which had no advertising, which was great. More of like a human focus, trying to help people with their finances and their money. And the last role I had was at Fast Forward Labs here in Brooklyn, which was really awesome. It still exists. It's an applied machine learning research group. They were acquired by Cloudera. Mm. But what we were doing was trying to predict the next, say, 18 months to two years, the stuff coming out of academia or out of these big research labs, say, Google or you know, OpenAI even back then, what was going to be ubiquitous? What, is, what was everybody going to be using in a couple of years? And so our small, weird group in a converted garage here was trying to predict those things. And then we would make prototypes and write reports about it to say, OK, this is actually how you could use this technology here are the shortcomings, then eventually big Fortune 500 companies would buy these reports and have us come and help them do that stuff. Right. It was an interesting progression from, like, how do you take a scientist and put them into industry? And then kind of navigating that path without a clear career path anymore of, like, what's interesting, what aligns with my values, what right. doesn't. Right, Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like now you have like high alignment between <laughs> your values and your skill set. But well, you didn't mention Yahoo, but we could say it. It's not your LinkedIn thing. And it's our parent company. So I should also disclaim that. But yeah, yeah, like they're very advertising focused, right? And I've worked, I, I worked at Shopify and we had data scientists on board as well, right? And they had similar goals from the product teams. Like we weren't selling advertising, but we were selling product more directly and trying to get them to buy more of certain things, right? Which a lot of it was spend on advertising, right? Like through our partners or whatever. So I can tell that, you know, and there was some friction there, I think with a lot of the people who came from a academic background being put into that kind of circumstance. And also my favorite thing ever with them was, you know, people would ask them stuff and they would be like, I can't, I can't tell you that based on this data you've given me. Like that's... (laughs) <laughs> you're doesn't... not an oracle uh, yeah, yeah yeah like i can't make those conclusions and i can't say with any degree of certainty what was causal and that and like everyone's yeah. just like well then why are you here right totally <laughs> totally uh, is, it, is it frustrating to do that and how do you like eventually reconcile like when you, the industry side and like get to the point where you're like here's what i can do and here's what i can't do and is that gonna work for you right yeah I feel like there was a big moment, and I don't know if it's still happening, so I'm sorry for all the data scientists currently out there that are still experiencing (laughs) this, but there was a big charge, I would say, like somewhere, I guess, between 2014 and 2018, where people were like, we're going to be data-driven, and all these companies sprung up to support that. Everybody was like, it was a data is your new oil thing. I think it was Andrew Ng that said that. Everyone was like, Mm -hmm. I've got oil. We've got to harness this oil and like get all we can out of it, and we have to use it to make all of our decisions because... If we don't, then we're misinformed or we're going to miss out on something. And the other thing was people really were like, there's patterns in the data. It was almost like you had a resource that you didn't know about and now you did and you had to mine it and like see like, okay, it's going to like just deliver something out of this like mess. Which is, I have a great analogy for that. If if anyone is a civilization player, like at a certain point during your research tree, you like discover what gunpowder could do or uranium. And then you realize like, oh, it's all over the map. And I have it, and now I'm going to put it to use, and it's going to be tremendous. It's going to change yeah. the way, right? But yeah. Yeah. And I really feel like there was this big moment where everyone was like, oh, my God. And then what happened was they needed data people, and there weren't enough data people because nobody was trained to be data people. And so you had weirdos like me who were academics and thought, like, 
I don't know how I would possibly do another job than what I'm doing. And they were like, you understand humans, you use data, you use machine learning, like you're perfect for this. But there's this huge divide then if you have that early crop, I guess I would say of people that were like, no, I can't, this is not accurate. And like getting over that, like, Mm. because in academia, it's like 95% confidence. You want to be really confident before you publish something. Very high bar. Industry, like it depends on the thing, right? So learning that like, for this decision, maybe it doesn't matter as much. Like, you just want to have a directional opinion. So there's sort of, like, this learning that happened. And then we have all of these, like, schools now that train people to be data scientists into these roles. And it's very different in terms of approach and education than what I had. Because you need to align with these business things. The other thing I think that happened, though, from the business side was that people got really fervent about discovering all these things. And they were going to make all of their decisions based on data. And at some point, that didn't really work out. Mm-hmm. Like, the promise of, oh, I'm just going to reach into this bucket of data and like find gold or uranium or whatever, or these patterns are just going to emerge like a sci-fi novel where, you know, like I just can see all of the cool things that are in there. None of that really, really works. You had to spend a bunch of time and people still do this, like figuring out how to store the data. Who, how do you access it? Is it right? So there's a lot of actually pretty boring work on that front. And I think when that didn't 100% deliver... People went back to being humans and said, okay, I'm going to use this data. It's helpful. gives me some insight. I think of the way people can use it now or are using it for the most part is like if you had a good analyst on the team that was looking or talking to your customers even, let's forget data altogether. They were actually like, you know, it's a small shop, a barber shop or something. And they're, they're like talking to all the customers and they're telling you at the end of the day, like, oh, this is what I heard. This is what I heard. This is what I heard. That's sort of the role now. It's not every decision has right. to be data-driven, or we can't make it. Because then you freeze and then make really bizarre decisions. Yeah. That A-B testing phase where everyone was like, I'm going to A-B test literally every feature, and you end up with like this amalgam of bizarre <laughs> visual, or like, this has to be blue, and but that one's orange, and it looks horrible in the end. Yeah. So those are my feelings. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we've so definitely long. gone down that path, too, like in publishing. And I don't know if... You've lived through that because, Becca, you're pretty new to our newsroom and you probably missed this phase of TechCrunch. But we definitely had a phase where we were like, we must A-B test every headline. And then the output was like, this is not for human consumption. What is yeah. this? <laughs> yeah. No, definitely done it at past shops too. The mm. A-B testing of things and you sometimes end up with stuff that's like 50-50. And you're like, well, that was not helpful at all. <laughs> Great. Yeah, Glad yeah. we did that. Yeah. But then, Alice, now you feel like what you're doing now, like, how has that evolved out of your experience and in this? Because it sounds like that was all, that would have been very formative if you were coming up through all of that, right? And then you arrive at a place where you're like, this is what we can do. And this is how these things kind of meld and can work productively together. Yeah, yeah. So I think those experiences in part gave me the ability to see, okay, here's this thing I want to happen. Here's the data and algorithms that are possible today. And like really ground in that. And then to be able to map out, okay, well, what's missing to get to that place, right? The place I'm trying to get to is not that every executive makes all completely data-driven decisions and we're automating away executives. Like, it's not happening. But for me, what happened was I could see that, especially with some of the changes that were happening with the transformer models back in 2019 and natural language, that we were actually getting a little bit closer to being able to do something with language, Right before that, it was very computer vision driven. Mm-hmm. The visual system is very easy to like, not easy, but it's clean and has like organization. It's great. When I saw that, and I had this this want to augment humans for the future, 
the way I saw things evolving. I got really excited that a piece of that was now possible. Mm. So had that not happened, and you know, natural language was still in the state as it was in, say, 2016, what I'm doing right now wouldn't be possible. And I think I would have you know, veered off and done something else with it. So I feel like that experience, and even the experience in an organization of someone saying, like, well, can you predict, like, whatever, the crop cycles 12 years from now? And you're like, no, I can't. Right, like, because I and I know why I can't. So I get good at explaining. Yeah. Here's what would need to be possible for me to be able to do that for you. Yeah. It's not possible now. So that kind of thinking, that framework, is really helpful as a founder to say, "Oh, I can kind of see the future. Cool. This or this happens, and then I'm ready to jump on it because I know what's missing right. from that right. path." Yeah. So once those unlocks appear, you're like, "Oh, like this makes like X Y Z possible," whereas before mm-hmm. that was not at all possible. Right. Yeah. Right. And I tend to think of them partially because of the founder of Fast Forward Labs was Hillary Mason, and she used to talk about capabilities all the time. And so it's kind of stuck with me, too, where I'm like, oh, it is a new capability, or it's not. And I can mm-hmm. tell that and say, mm, yeah, this isn't actually going to solve my problem. Yeah. I can't help but think of Psychohistory and the Foundation series when we're talking about all this, right? Like, with perfect data, it's like, oh, you can see all of history for... Sure. Tens of thousands of years or whatever, but it's also like, but you can't predict specific action, right? That's always his whole thing in that is like, oh, I can't tell you what happens next week, right? I can tell you the grand arc of history or whatever, but we can't do either of those things. So (laughs) it doesn't doesn't apply. Right, right. Making predictions is is tricky, tricky, tricky. Weather is my favorite example of that. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I'm curious with, as you mentioned, so much of this company you couldn't have done say, five, ten years ago, just based on sort of how and where the field was. What has it been like building the algorithm for Recollect and kind of going through that process with everything being so new that you're looking at and sort of this like new way to approach it? Yeah, exciting. <laughs> I'm excited that these things are possible. It's also interesting in the building aspect of it. So when I first started down this path with Recollect, I was still figuring out the shape of it and what the, you know, the company would look like and all of those things. And I would talk to people about the idea. And a lot of people were like, that's bizarre. And the original idea was actually much farther out. So I kind of get that. But I think that, you know, this is very new territory. There are very new things happening. Mm -hmm. Being able to implement those things. And this is going back to having done this for a minute now. There are paths that I chose not to take. There are new things that are coming out all the time that I know from a business perspective are not going to work. Because if I'm paying, let's say, for API calls, let's use OpenAI as an example, right? Like if I pay for those API calls, I build a whole product that's like amazing. But now OpenAI changes their business model and now I'm reliant on them for this, you know, core functionality in the product. Um, And I decide or my customers decide this is going to be huge. I'm really in trouble, right? Like I can't scale the business fundamentally. So it's, it's, it's like an interesting combination of like, New things, it's very exciting. I love the research that's going on and understanding which of the new things not to use Mm -hmm. to say like, eh, this won't work actually for a real business. Mm-hmm. I'm curious, you mentioned the original vision was far out. Do you want to share what the, do you talk about it still or do you keep it I out do. of the pitch sticks? Okay. Well, I keep it out of the pitch sticks and I might add it back in now. So when I was originally going down this path, I, I sort of gave the pitch, which I'll give in a second, but to people and they were like, that sounds insane. Uh, don't talk about that other stuff. <laughs> the thing you're building right now is solving a real need and is a real product and you could just go with that. Like right. this other stuff is not, you don't, you don't, you shouldn't talk about it. 
but now that things have changed, right? Like I was talking about, like I wanted to augment, you know, human creativity, human creative thoughts. And in the original, which I may still do, this step we're doing right now. So we're taking all of this information, the sentence level, we're connecting it the way your mind would. We're, you know, using models of human memory to do those connections. We're bringing things back that are, say, like two hops out on the graph to mm-hmm. emulate this divergent thinking. Then step two of that is we have a lot of these connected devices that we're wearing now. So we have devices that give us things like our heart rate, skin conductance, respiratory rate. I actually advise one of these brain-computer interface companies, but you know we've got brain-computer interfaces coming online as well, and we're seeing traction there. So when we have that kind of information about an individual, you suddenly open up the door from, I know you read this, or I know you listened to this podcast, to, oh, I know when you were paying attention. Right. I know the little snippet that from this podcast you're listening to right now, future people, that should be highlighted, right? That should come into the system in a different way because you attended to it. It was important to you. Mm-hmm. So we have sort of that component of it, but we also, another important part of you know creative thinking is mind-wandering. You can't be really focused. You cannot be scrolling Twitter. Like, you know, in that state, someone would say, if they looked at your biometric data, they would say, oh, this person's very intently focused. But the thing you're focused on is like, possibly putting you in a negative state in terms of your mood, which is bad for creativity in general. And you need to mind wander. So in a Zoom conversation or in a real conversation, your mind kind of every once in a while, like veers off. You think about some things or someone says something interesting and you're like, oh, I need something related to that. That process is incredibly important. And so part of the original vision was, okay, if people can wear something, like some sort of wearable that, you know, we're trying to help track their attention and their mind wandering, not to engage them all the time and make them hyper-focused, but really to let them feel like it's okay if I'm mind-wandering. If I'm in this meeting and I miss something because I'm like thinking about some other idea in my own head and someone says, hey, Alice, what do you think? I should be able to, to take the transcript of that, pull out the summary of what's just happened and like show it to me and say like, this is what you need to say, right? Right, right. Like this is where we're at or this is what you know about that. Yeah, the original idea was very much like taking the more of the wearables as they become ubiquitous, more of the AR, VR spaces as they become ubiquitous, and being able to manipulate this, your ideas in space was the other piece of it. Because we didn't evolve for rectangular boxes where everything's hidden. Mm-hmm. So being able to visualize your own ideas, your thoughts, how they're organized is really, really important, I think. All of that combined sounds like, okay, you've got good amount of hardware that's right. like in this in in the mix here and then like i really do believe that in five ten years we're not going to have the same kinds of computers we're not going to have the same kinds of interfaces those will change the way they change like you said with the data i can't actually predict right now yeah. like you know we'll see what gets adopted i think is the most important piece of that people will come up with a lot of really cool ways to interact with digital things but we don't need the storage on the machine anymore it's in the cloud and so if we move away from that, we also need a way to interact with that information. And that's going to have to be through speech, I think. Hmm. So being able to like pull up something, right, depending on what the surface is, it could be glasses, it could be in the room, whatever it is, you want to be able to access this stuff. And so there's going to be gestures, I think, but you also need a lot of language. So what we're building right now really can be this foundation for a lot of those things. Sure, yeah. So you don't need files anymore. You don't need these structures you have on your computer at all. And you don't need to type because you can talk to it. Mm-hmm. And you also get this sort of really personal information 
that we have to be careful isn't just sold for advertising. But you have this very, like it becomes more of an extended mind and less of, oh, I have this thing that like helps me take better notes. Yeah. So, yeah. So that's that's like the bigger, longer path, I think. But when I was talking about it originally, people were like, that's, we don't know what transformers are. We don't understand the like machine learning part of it is not, we didn't like GPT-3, I think it just, just come out Mm. and people were like, don't know what this is going to be yet but with these advances now i feel a little more comfortable because people are like of course machines can help you be more creative like yeah. that's a given now and i'm like this is fantastic right okay mm-hmm. now so the now you can do some steps. heavier lifting right yeah 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 i was gonna ask you about that i feel like nine twelve months ago vcs were just not interested in the ai space and i feel like the last month it's like ai has totally exploded and People who probably, that I know personally, who probably don't even realize they're using like a fully AI generated system or, you know, they're trying out Lenza, they're trying out all those new things. I'm curious, like how much fuel do you think that'll add to like the fire that you're working on having more people just be like really interested in these like consumer AI kind of companies? I'm very interested how it will play out. I think I've I've been thinking about it a lot the past like two months or so, I think since Stable Diffusion came out. That was the big one, really. GPT-3 was out. People were meh, fine. Okay, this is kind of cool. Even Dolly 2 was like, it, yeah. it's, it sparked interest, but then people are like, but I can't get at it. I can't like, you know, right. yeah. Right, right, right. So I really feel like Imad did, everybody is serviced by open sourcing these things. There's lots of complication around how do you open source this stuff? Like, that's not my you know, purview. I, mm-hmm. He can do what he needs to do with that. <laughs> but in terms of the excitement, like I'm really excited because it makes my job a lot easier to explain what we're doing. And to give people a touch point, I think what's really missing when we're going from one kind of computing to another or one kind of way of working to another is how do you talk about what's currently happening and ground people in that and then be able to lead them to the next thing? So from a conversational standpoint, from a storytelling standpoint, I think it helps a lot for people to say, oh, I tried X. It could be Jasper. It could be, you know, some of the stable diffusion models. It could be Dolly. But they've a lot of people now, especially in tech, I'm sure, you know, I don't think my mom has like gone on and made a bunch of images in stable diffusion, but a lot of people at least have had some access to this. Mm-hmm. So I think that's really positive. On the other side of that, I think what we'll naturally see now is it's a new thing you can plug in and it's, it's pretty easy to plug in. So I think we'll see tons and tons and tons of companies plugging it in. It's almost like it's really a black box they're plugging in, right? I mean, a lot of these models are black boxes to yeah. begin with. So you have to prompt them and you can't really steer what's happening inside. You know, once you prompt it, you get a thing out and you don't really understand why. Even as the engineers, it's it's harder to really understand that. So I think on the other end of that, easier storytelling, but also people will get burned and say, this stuff is terrible. Mm-hmm. Like I tried this thing and I hate it. And it's not because the technology is fundamentally not there yet or it's bad. It's that, you know, even when deep learning first came out, it's really hard to implement, right? And get it in the right place. Everybody wanted to be deep learning. Every, every single person wanted to do deep learning in these organizations. It's like, no, you don't need it for this problem mm-hmm. or you can't do it the right way. So I'm excited about it. I think it'll make it easier for me in some ways. I think it'll make it harder for me in some ways. But for our company, I think the way that we're using some of these things is a little bit different than like, oh, I have GPT-3 on top of a thing now. It's so great. Right. I think we'll benefit from first, like having worked in this space for a really long time and understanding how you actually implement these things in a, in a safe way. But then as soon as we have that latch, we can kind of build on the store and say like, okay, we're not using it this way, but this is why it works this way. 
Yeah, that makes sense. Because it seems like, like you said, a lot of people are now doing it as a a straight up bolt on. It's like, okay, like, let's strap this to whatever we're doing. And then we'll go from there. Whereas you have it like in the very core of the product and you're engaged in building it directly, right? Which is like a very different proposition. But I think it's like the astute observation there that I think people don't yet realize is like the screw will turn, so to speak, on this. Like right Mm -hmm. now. It's all very good. We're already seeing a little bit of the worm turning, rather. I guess I don't know what expression I'm using anymore. But like, (laughs) Haya wrote a great article on TechCrunch this week about Lenza and how Lenza can very easily be manipulated into producing like non-consensual, artificially generated pornography, right? Yeah. And their response was, well, it's against our terms of service, which is always a hilarious response because it's like, oh, cool. Like, that's the same. Great. Never mind. Not concerned. Yeah. Facebook said the same thing about Cambridge Analytica. Worked great for (laughs) them, right? Right. (laughs) Um, Another thing, you expressed that problem too, right? Like you can't address that within the black box. And the solution they've provided to us and that they're going to implement is product. or It's like output oriented. It's like once the Mm -hmm. output comes out, we will then censor the output based upon, again, artificial or like ML power detection of this stuff, right? So, but yeah, you can't, you can't, build it into the thing, which is a huge barrier for anybody trying to use this at the level of like a Salesforce or a Microsoft or like a huge, huge tech company yeah. that, that with lots of dependabilities and whatever. Right. And I, I was going to say it's like inconsistent because that would be another problem because a lot of the times the the profile generator just spits out stuff and some of them are great and some of them are like, what? What is this? This doesn't look like a human, let alone me. Right. But it probably is internally very consistent to itself and its training data and expected outcomes or whatever, right? It's just like, that's our interpretation of inconsistency. Regardless, that's another thing that they have to solve for, right? Which is hard to do in a black box world. Yeah, and it kind of, I mean, two of the things you said, I think, loop back to what we talked about earlier a little bit. So if we're deeming this system to do creative work, we're really the ones judging that. So if it's coming up with things and you're like, what in the world? Why do I have, like, you know, some of the images, like, why is there a hand growing out of the head? Like, that's so disturbingly bizarre and specific. So I think understanding the way the thing works is the first step, right? So anyone bolting this on, understanding, like, it is mostly a black box. You can do some fine tuning, but really, you're kind of, like, shooting things in, it's coming out. Another thing, though, that I find very interesting, so uh, bolting it on on its face, probably a bad idea, without the Mm -hmm. controls, right? So what we really want are some sort of guardrails to say hopefully this like this thing doesn't turn into that horrible chatbot that i don't i can't remember the name of right now it came Tay? Out years ago. Tay, i think Tay. microsoft's Tay. Yeah, yeah yeah so microsoft right like does this thing and everyone's like oh, horrified right and then there's all the social commentary which kind of makes sense it's like we trained this on all this data it's just reflecting back human behavior yeah. what are we going to do about that but i think what people forget too is that there is this whole practice around, you know, using machine learning, which is not a deterministic system, right? It's probabilistic. Like most machine learning models will cut, will, will do something that, you know, varies from time to time as it's learning, right? Which is a big distinction actually between, you know, some of these like frozen models, I'll say like GPT-3, right? Mm-hmm. It's being trained on the, like somewhere, right? Where there's lots of resources. It's not really learning every time you use it. Like right. it can do a little bit with a few shot. So it's got like a few kind of a memory for a few of the prompts back, but it's not the same as a model that's continuously learning and changing over time. So that's a little bit difficult. But when you think about like, okay, so even if you plug it in and has a horrible output, we already have algorithms to detect inappropriate content. 
because humans create terrible content and try to put it on, you know, YouTube, wherever. So we already have a mix of humans and machine learning models and, and other models that are maybe not even machine learning models are just decision trees, right? So we have to think about these as an ecosystem, I think. And so mm-hmm. we're thinking about it that way as well. So like our product doesn't just use one model. We're thinking about it, like we have graphs, right? I think graphs are a great way to put constraint on the system. You know how these nodes are connected in some way. Mm-hmm. You're kind of determining those things. So the people that are working on these things, if they can go back to, all right, this isn't actually brand new. This is a new architecture. It's very interesting. It does really interesting things. But we have all of these other models and ways of building products and making sure they're safe that exist today. So mm-hmm. building that into your product shouldn't be the hardest thing. Right. And probably also shouldn't be an afterthought. If Oh, my gosh. No. <laughs> yeah. It's part of the original design. <laughs> right. We know it's going to do something weird. So let's make sure that you don't just unleash it yeah, on the world and then those really weird things or it feeds other models worst case so i could imagine now we have all these credit ranking models like we've got lots of models that do a lot for us in our lives that have really big consequences for people so if i've got a thing that's generating even like what seems innocuous like a profile picture Mm -hmm. on some website I guarantee there's a credit scoring model that's looking at all of your social media looking at those pictures and like You've got a thing that like looks at, like there's a characteristic in that photo, right? Yeah, absolutely. If, you, if your photo has like a huge blunt and you're like, oh, sweet. It's like, no, I don't know if this one is the most trustworthy credit wise. <laughs> right, right. Which, yeah, makes a lot of sense, actually, if they're just images or even you drew an image and it looks really weird. I don't know. But now you've got a system that's like other models are combing the Internet and getting data. The data, again, we talked about this earlier this conversation, but like the AI is generating some of the data and another machine learning model is using that data as a way right. to make decisions. And you're like, oh, but now we got to let it know that this shouldn't be used. And those two models are not talking. You know, the big insurance companies, the big fintech bank companies, if they're out there, please like think about this. But they have to change their models now. Yeah, because fake, fake, but it's generative content is being put out like crazy. Yeah, that's right. It cascades, and it, it's impossible to kind of define a proper place where the chain should break. I guess, but yeah, mm-hmm. we'll see a break, and then when it breaks, hopefully, people are not like this technology is terrible. We should never use it, and we have another AI winter. Like, I don't think we will, but that's always the risk with any hype cycle, as we've just mm-hmm. said. Yeah. Like. yeah, and I'm curious. I know looking at your website, it looks like you guys have a wait list. Mm-hmm. for users i'm curious like who is a good fit or like who are you targeting for sort of like the first wave of users on here and does that change with how people are now viewing ai so differently than say a few months ago and kind of like where does it go from there that's a great question so we really have initially started focusing on writers i wanted to find people that it is their job even if they're not a journalist even if they're a Substack writer say that's growing their audience and wants to get more subscribers I feel like if they're not journalists, they're probably better because they probably have money, which I assume you want. <laughs> I do want money. Yeah, I'm going to need some money. <laughs> yes. Well, it's yeah. I mean, this is like an interesting product development strategy, right? So I want the people that are going to be using the thing most and give the most feedback and have some willingness or ability to pay. So the product we're creating is a consumer product. We're figuring out how much we'll pay, but like, somewhere between 15 and $30 a month, right? So if you're delivering a ton of value, I feel like most people that 
make money from their writing can justify some of those costs. So it doesn't feel so far off. But one of the reasons we started with, you know, people that are writing is that their ideas are their currency, right? Like that's so important to be able to get your ideas, put them together, like synthesize them, create a story around them and to communicate that out almost more than any other role I could think of in the beginning. And it's sometimes it's not a deadline. I mean, often it's not a deadline for a journalist, but really there's, there's sort of a time pressure involved as well. Mm-hmm. So we've expanded that a little bit. So we've been in private alpha for a little while. There is a wait list. Everybody should sign up for the wait list if you're excited about the stuff. But for the, let's say the more newsletter writers, we're seeing fewer people doing that. I think there was this big explosion of it earlier in COVID. Lots of people were doing that. So to answer your question earlier, that nothing huge is changing based on the, the you know generative stuff coming out, people being excited about this. Like that doesn't really change our our target customer, but we are continuing to think about, you know, what are the characteristics of the people that use something like this? They do research, they read a ton. We, part of our product, you know, is in the reading experience. Like you're on the web, you've got this web extension, you can recall what you know about what you're reading. We can show you what's connected to that. So yeah, we're, we're starting to expand. I think we'll move into this beta in the new year, but we're expanding to people that are avid knowledge consumers and aspirational knowledge creators in a sense. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Like they want to do more of this. They want to do that communication. But at the heart of it, it's always you're consuming a lot. You feel overwhelmed. You need to synthesize that and you need to communicate it somehow to somebody, even if it's yeah. yourself. Right. <laughs> you need to like have this thing done and ready. Like you said, with your notebooks and things like you need to be able to get that back later. Yeah. Well, I know there's like a, you know, there's always this stigma about broadening too big what your audience is potentially, but like, yeah. you know, working at, at Shopify, there was a high value place on writerly skills internally yeah. across all product managers, across all engineers. It was like, this is the way that you should organize your thoughts. We had a, I forget the name of it, but there was a massive like internet back channel knowledge store that they created, mm-hmm. which was like, you know, basically a huge wiki thing. Right. And it was all interlinked and there were classes given and like, here's how you write your product brief for this. And here's how you should think about it. And they even had me teach some stuff on like how to write so that like the people would get it. But so I think it's potentially massive there. Right. Like, yeah. And that's like, I think all large tech companies have something similar, if yeah. not the same as that. Right. But yeah. 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 And I think that that's the like next concentric circle, if you were too. of, mm-hmm. Okay. But back to, like, you know some things, synthesize them, you have to communicate them internally. That happens for almost every role yeah. in an organization. And so we're seeing, too, when we talk to people, like, their conception of, okay, I'm bringing AI into that process. Is the autocomplete right now? Or write mm-hmm. the thing for me? Mm-hmm. Which I think is never going to work without, like, there's a few things that really need to be connected to it. So if I am using a tool that, you know, I start to begin, right at the beginning of this, which sounds very structured at Shopify, like, there's a format that's great. Machines love formats. But even there, it doesn't really know what you know. It knows what yeah. the world knows. Like, it can't generate content or generate information in there that's going to be good. And so one really interesting insight we've had is that people don't have a problem writing. Like, it's really about the thinking. You need to be able mm-hmm. to do the thought work. Most people can type pretty quickly. They can form sentences that are coherent. Grammarly is great for yeah. that kind of thing. You know, so there's really then how do you help people with the thought that goes into that writing rather than just generating the writing? 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that was the substantive was like always the tricky part there. And the part that they were trying to get people to focus on was like how to actually effectively communicate in the space allotted. Right. Or like the space ideally permitted. But like what you're talking about now with like the other ones, it brings to mind like, OK, well, then the competitive advantage in a world where GPT can write very competently these other things is in being able to do more than that, which is what yeah. tools like yours would be able to provide. Right. 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 And so that's, I think, where we're going to end up sitting for the most part is Mm. we're building this sort of connected knowledge brain extended mind thing, right? And so GPT-3 can get way better over time. I'm sure that adding more parameters will be great, but it's not going to connect and be useful until we can start to attach it to things like what we're building. Yeah, that's exactly right. You need to have the underlying piece of it, you know, I'm trying to think of good examples of this, but you know, you have those automated dolls that can talk, right? Mm-hmm. And you can tell that they're not living, they're not real, right? Because right. you're like, there's there's something. And so I think that's what we're really gonna find is like, oh, it sounds cool. Like it sounds articulate. That's great. And I think GPT three point five or whatever's out in GPT four are gonna sound more and more articulate and more and more coherent. But it's very easy then to say, like, oh, I'm thinking of like the emperor's new clothes, something. There's all these analogies that I'm fa- that are failing me right now, but but, oh, yeah. Yeah. Yes, like I know the, what you mean. Or the Wizard of Oz. Like a Potemkin right? city almost or whatever, right? It's like, you know, yeah. the lights are all on, but it's not a, there's no one living there. Right. Yeah yeah, yeah. 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 No, that's such a good point with more of helping the formulation of the thoughts as opposed to the actual writing piece of it. Because I know my favorite example of how those text AI systems still don't really work is that when I used to use Outlook at my last job, it always wanted to change look into to investigate. And I was like, oh, coming from a reporter, we really, we just really wouldn't want to change that to investigate. (laughs) That just is a completely different word in this context. But like the AI doesn't know that. Right. Oh, it's it's good to hear more of like the thought formation because some of the, yeah, the straight to like text creation is... It's not, it's not there yet. No. Well, it should learn, too, to my point right. here, which is like, you should have a personalized way of knowing, oh, this person keeps saying no to changing right. this. Yes. It shouldn't yes. keep asking if you design no. a good model. That is actually the reason behind, I have so many embarrassing typos and articles that are because <laughs> WordPress was like auto typo corrected. And I went back and deleted like seven times and it never was like, okay. I get it. You want to do the other thing, right? Right. Yeah, it's still still very, very bad at that. But Oh, well, help them get better, Alice. Help yes. all of this get better. You, you brought this up and I, I can't stop thinking about it. So I do want to hear your answers. Like we talked a lot about like unintended consequences, right? So do you, how much do you think about that? And like, you seem like a very conscientious person. So how do you contend with like the fact that as you're building these tools, they might have a significant impact on the way people think and what they think about. And, you know, over time it could change significantly human thought, right? So how do you contend with that, especially at the early outset of a product like this? Yeah. One of the main ways I think about that, so part of what we're doing is As humans, we have a memory that works in a really particular way. So we forget things. And it's frustrating when I forget something, but it's also really important for me to forget and have the ability to forget. So one of the things we think about a lot as we're building this is if we give you this perfect memory that a machine has, what are we doing to you? Like, what Mm -hmm. happens when we bring back memories that shouldn't be brought back? Mm -hmm. And, And we're already seeing this in some technology today. If you have Google Photos and Know, maybe you have a pet or a loved one that's passed away. You don't really want like 
remember this day and you're like at work and you know this is horrible like I don't want to see this right now so anything with memory I think is like this is a major thing we need to be thinking about like how do we have memories decay that people aren't engaging with like that you know maybe they do need to forget and giving you the superpower of I can remember everything isn't the way we evolved and there's a reason for that so Mm -hmm. like weighing helping you be equipped for modern day which we also didn't evolve for with the way that your mind works and keeping like everything we do is really keeping in line with like not stealing your attention, not making you hyper-focus on certain things, like really trying to understand why your mind works the way it does, what's going on today in the world, and then building these systems to make sure we're not doing harm or yeah. trying as best we can not to do harm. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. Cause you also mentioned the hyper-attention thing and I was thinking of the nefarious yeah. uses of like you know like if and especially in a remote work culture it's like oh cool i can use this to like hyper engage my employees or whatever yeah. through cues or something but oh my gosh yeah there's a lot of ways that can go south and when i think about that i get a little concerned especially given my aversion to the advertising models and working right. on that stuff it's like well you could use the same technology and, and we really kind of are right we're repurposing a lot of what's been done already and you know in terms of how do you recommend things in a different way? And so one thing I like to think about a lot is that like, okay, there's a lot of danger there. If I don't do it, who else is going to work on this? Right. Yeah. Cause they yeah. will. And then what are we left with? Like it feels irresponsible then to say, I'm just, I'm absolving myself from this whole conversation. Mm-hmm. I'm ducking out given the experience that I have right now. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great way to think about it is like, in fact, you have an ethical imperative to contribute in a positive way. Right. Yeah. And uh, I mean, yeah, the tension there, especially with advertising is when we know well, mm-hmm. Becca works on the paywalled side. So she's in a better situation. Me, I work on the display ad side, which means I'm constantly fighting with people because I hate advertising, except for our advertiser for this episode, of course, whoever Perfect. that may be. Favorite we love company. them. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but Alice, it's been really lovely talking to you. I, this is a fantastic conversation. I think I could talk for hours more, but unfortunately we're out of time. <laughs> but I'm sure we'll have you back in the future to talk again. So thanks very okay. much for joining us. And yeah, people should go check out uh, Recollect. Yeah, Recollect.ai. Thank you so much for having me. This has been awesome. All right, that was our conversation with Alice. Becca, what did you recollect most about that conversation. <laughs> what I always find interesting, I love the intersection of these deep tech companies with creativity. And just honestly, anything that's going to help me remember, my brain is a black pit. Like even mm-hmm. trying to remember basic things, simple things, really straightforward things. So the thought of having this type of a product to help with the creative process, especially in writing, I can totally see the use cases here. Yeah, I think you're right, or I agree with with you when it comes to what interests me most is often when these things collide, like the intersection of arts and technology, as Steve Jobs would put it. But I think this is like a particularly interesting example of that. It probably helps that Alice has such a deep academic background and like research on this subject and is, I think, herself probably a very creative person. But the product itself is, it feels like it's like building out that web, that edge around the outer limits of your mind where you're like oh what was that thing that i saw and then it just kind of like 
has them because the way that it mostly shows up, I'm just in case listeners are curious because Alice did give me that demo is as a extension in Chrome, but you can kind of click on it. And if you're on an article page, it'll say like, do you want to remember this article? Or you can highlight elements in the article and click on it. It'll remember that. And it'll also pop up and like bring it back from your collection, like things that are perhaps related to what you've just highlighted. Or interestingly, other things you were reading at the same time that perhaps you read this in the past, right? So it doesn't necessarily have to be directly related. It could just be correlated in a linear sense, like just in terms of time, which is how a lot of us think and synthesize information, right? Like I was reading this and then I was reading this and, you know, maybe there wasn't necessarily a connection thematically, but I realized afterwards that they were connected in this profound way. And that's how I generated new idea xyz or whatever right so mm-hmm. it's pretty cool and it, it is it feels like a notebook that is like organized in the way that you know a rough mental model of like interwoven ideas work right and i think it'll get smarter over time since it's, it's very early i think it's alpha yet still but already a super cool product and one i plan to use more as a writer when i'm not just like i don't know shit posting elon musk or whatever i do most of the time these days <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it sounds just like a great way to like gather string, that old school yeah. like journalism term. Like just you notice a few things, they have nothing to do with each other. When you think about the three of them together, it gives you something else, which yeah. is like such a big part, I feel, of not just the writing process, but lots of different mediums and creativity. You kind of go through similar, oh, what do you want to look at? What do you want to photograph? What do you want to? It's going to end up being a combination of things when you yeah. get down to it. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And the way it shows up to and this is interesting, and maybe you'll have thoughts on this is like when you want to look at overall kind of your notebook, as it were, it looks like a infinite canvas, kind of like, what are they called? Like flow chart almost or like modal diagram, like, yeah, which is kind of an interesting and novel way. It would be novel for me as a way to organize my ideas. That's not typically how I do it. I typically do it like linear notebook style, like just, okay, rage bullet points, whatever, next thing. But this is much more, yeah, web-like, I guess, right? But Mm -hmm. do you think you could get on board with something like that? Absolutely. I mean, if I had access to, like, a huge whiteboard, I mean, in theory, I guess I could have this, but that would feel ridiculous (laughs) in my the size of this tiny office. But that's, like, the best way to come up with ideas, especially if you're in, like, a group or you're with other people, is kind of just riffing off ideas connecting them with lines, like showing like, oh, these two things are related in this way or they're not related in that. And like making connections like that, I feel is really helpful. So I Mm -hmm. wish I could do that. But I mean, writing in a notebook or like, God forbid, trying to format that in like Google Docs. So don't do that now. But definitely (laughs) could see how much easier that would be to kind of work through brainstorming and stuff like that, which I think I think what I really like about this is this is focused on brainstorming. I feel Mm -hmm. like a lot Mm -hmm. of the stuff we've seen thus far and the AI space, especially with helping produce like outcomes where this company definitely fits in that category, is more focused on the outcome as opposed to like yeah. how to get helping you get there as opposed to it getting there for you, right. which I think I like that approach much better. And I think there's just way more use cases for that. Yeah, absolutely. One imagined criticism, which we didn't really talk about with Alice, but she probably has heard before is, you know, isn't this just a bridge technology? And then the end state is already racing ahead and might beat you to market or whatever, right? Like if you have mm. GPT 3.5 or GPT 4 or whatever out there just like spitting out full articles, why do you need the breadcrumbs thing for the creative? Because you've supplanted the creative, right? But I think we talked about how she doesn't believe the creative ever truly will be supplanted. And 
you know, me and you probably also agree, or at least are hoping for the near future because it's our bread and butter. Right. (laughs) That's how we make money. (laughs) But yeah. No, I like have a hard time believing I'd read a book like written by like an AI interface. Right. But would I read a book where the author was able to kind of put all this extra stuff in or like recall if it was like say nonfiction, recall all these different events that happened and memories because they use something like this. I mean, as a reader, you would just notice that it was a better book probably. Yeah. Yeah, probably so. Yeah. I think that's, we've seen that happen to a lot of other technologies, right? Where like, I mean, just written word, written word is a great one. Like it just helped immensely in terms of like our ability to convey thoughts and the sophistication of thought, right? So Mm -hmm. this seems like it could be another step change there. And where I also thought she was super interesting is that she's thinking about those impacts, right? It's not just like, oh, we want to do this and it'll change everything and it'll be great. It's like, we want to do this in a responsible way insofar as we're able, right? Right. And I feel like that's why... AI sort of got hot a few years ago and then went away. And now we're seeing it again because I feel like that first wave of AI companies just didn't have that sort of thoughtful approach to it. And then things went off the rails. And I know Alice talked a lot about how you need guardrails for things like this, which I think is super important because that first wave of AI companies, you didn't really see that very often. And no, I can't name any of those companies anymore. And like no one talks about most of them. Right. It's like there's a reason why. Alice is smart and sort of taking that approach. Yeah. And the only one I can think of in that group was Microsoft, because as we talked about, they released oh. Microsoft. <laughs> they released Tay on an unsuspecting public and it was a mess. Right. But uh, yeah, I think that one, that one, I feel like is going to be gr- like, we'll never forget it or it'll be. It'll be generative for like long into the future where when we write down the long history of AI, we'll be like, and remember Microsoft released Tay, which I don't know, at least evokes like the most popular pop singer in the world at the time. And it just immediately became like the most racist, monstrous thing in the entire universe. Yeah, just a stunning decline. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a real seminal moment, but definitely set everything back and obviously had next level impacts on people probably even like like Alice herself right about like okay now remember this always has to be top of mind I, she probably would have gone into that anyway because it seems like she's a very humanistic researcher who takes ethics as like a primary concern but yeah it def- definitely has a lasting impact and also she used to work at Yahoo so we got that in common <laughs> that's the only reason we had her on the show no I'm totally kidding yeah disclaimer we didn't realize that before uh I was having a conversation with her before she came on the podcast, actually, and she was just going through her background saying, like, oh, I used to work at Yahoo. And I said, oh, like, you know, they own us. And she said, what? And I was like, they own TechCrunch. And she had no idea, which is good. And I'm sorry for revealing it to those of you who are listening to this podcast who do realize or now that Yahoo owns TechCrunch. Don't worry about it. It's not important. You can forget it. Forget that fact. Just you didn't realize it before. <laughs> So you don't need to know it now. Shh, go back to sleep. <laughs> it's all <laughs> dream. <laughs> Found is hosted by myself, managing editor Daryl Etherington and TechCrunch Plus reporter Becca Skutak. We're produced by Maggie Stamitz with editing by Kel. Bryce Durbin is our illustrator. Alyssa Stringer leads audience development and Henry Pickovit manages TechCrunch's audio products. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week. <laughs> <laughs>